I'm sure you've all heard the story um, of the blind men and the elephant. You know, you're familiar with that uh, story where one blind man goes along and uh, feels the tusk of the elephant and says, uh, ah, the elephant is like a, a sharp spear. Another man, he grabs the uh, uh, trunk of the elephant and says, no, 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 the, the trunk it, or, or the elephant is like a snake. A third man, a blind man wraps his arms around uh, uh, a leg and says, no, 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 um, the elephant is, it, it's, he is like a tree. So on and so on. All six blind men, they touch, grab a hold of different parts of the elephant. <laughs> now, that children's story, if you're familiar with it, is uh, often told as examples of how world religions um, encounter uh, just a small part of God. Um, no one can claim to have, um, you know, the right answer because, see, everyone's answer is only partly right. Everyone touches only a small part of the elephant. And I got to tell you, that attitude, uh, perspective, feels good um, um, in our highly pluralistic uh, world today uh, where we encounter people of all sorts of other religions, you know, on a regular basis. And the upshot of all of this is that well-meaning people, what they've done is they've concluded that there is um, um, no ultimate truth. The truth is just relative. Um, if we just agree that all religions, that they're all equally right, you know, um, coexist, <laughs> then all these conflicts and difficulties that we experience in this world, they all go away. They say that all religions, they're just holding different pieces, see, of the same elephant. Or it's oftentimes expressed this way, that all religions are just different paths up the same mountain. Ever heard that? So here's my question. When it comes to the person of Jesus Christ... And who he is, how can we claim that what we believe is right? I mean, why is it that we say that there's only, uh, uh, that the only way a person can be saved, the only way a person can have salvation is in and through the person of Jesus Christ alone? I'm glad you're here this morning um, because... <laughs> This is our second week of this sermon series titled Alone, um, Five Core Beliefs. And in this series, we are talking about five foundational, five essential, five non-negotiable beliefs of our faith. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Bible alone is the unique authority to speak about these things, and this is all done for the glory of God alone. <laughs> this morning, we're going to be looking at the core belief that we are saved in and through Jesus Christ alone. See, I would suggest that probably one of the top questions that Christians are being asked today, um, if you get in one of these spiritual conversations is how can you say that Jesus is the only way of salvation? I mean, isn't that being a bit um, arrogant? Isn't that, okay, maybe a lot arrogant. <laughs> I mean, isn't that being narrow-minded? 
How do you respond? What do you say? I mean, I think that's a question all of us as Christ followers, we need to know how to answer. After all, think about our mission here at First Free, right? Our mission is to help individuals become what? Christ-centered and Christ-sent together. So why is it that we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord alone? Well, I want to begin with uh, two different passages of Scripture. The first comes in the Gospel of John. And you read here that uh, Jesus, from his very own lips, uh, says to his disciples on their last night together, he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Catch that? No one comes to the Father but through me. The second passage of Scripture I think we need to establish um, is, uh, look at is, is from the book of Acts, um, where Peter is testifying um, before the Jewish high court, the, the Sanhedrin, about how, he had, uh, how a crippled man had become healed. And he says to this um, uh, Jewish court, he says, It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then he says, just a little bit later on, he says, Salvation is found in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other name. Friends, that's solas Christus. <laughs> Latin for Christ alone. Salvation in Christ alone. Healing through Christ alone. Redemption through Christ alone. The kingdom of heaven coming to earth through Christ alone. This claim that Jesus is the only way of salvation. I get to, it's not smug, it's, it's not arrogant, it's, it's not narrow-minded. Why? Well, because of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is unique. So this morning, what I want to do is I want us to walk through five only Jesus statements um, that will remind us why Jesus is unlike any other religious leader or teacher in all of human history, okay? Five Jesus-only statements. The first one is this. Only Jesus is fully God and fully human. Jesus is the only God-man in all of history. <laughs> I mean, think of the very first sentence of John's gospel, Tells us that Jesus was God, right? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word being Jesus. A few verses later, John adds, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus, God, man, he's the second person of the Trinity. Now, admittedly, the Trinity, I mean, it's a mystery, Right? But the Gospels affirm it to be true over and over and over again. I mean, just take a moment and read through the Gospel of John sometime. <laughs> I mean, you find 
Jesus there in the Gospel of John accepting Peter's prostate uh, worship, you know. When challenged, Jesus um, answers bluntly, I and the Father are one. Another occasion, Jesus um, said, before Abraham was born, I am. Using the sacred Hebrew word for God, I am. Now, we might miss Jesus' point when we read over that passage, but I got to tell you, those devout Jews that heard Jesus' claim there didn't. I mean, what ended up happening is they picked up stones in order to punish him, to kill him for his blasphemy. Later in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, talking about his own Jewish ancestry, said, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God, man. The writer of Hebrews talking about Jesus says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. See, only Jesus is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. I got to tell you, this claim... (laughs) I want to suggest it's probably the dividing point between Christianity and every other religion. This one claim. Although Muslims respect Jesus as a great teacher and prophet, they can't imagine Muhammad um, claiming to be Allah. Hindus believe in many incarnations, but not the one incarnation. And Buddhists have no category in which to conceive of a sovereign God becoming a human. It's not in their belief. It's not in their world. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his famous passage in Mere Christianity, he said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg Or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Only Jesus, see, is fully God and fully man. This then tells us, I got to tell you, tells us something credible about God. It tells us that God understands us and God understands our condition. The fact that he came in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ tells us he he loves us. As Henry Nouwen points out, the mystery of Jesus is that he became something like a a, a prodigal son for our sakes. Nouwen writes this, he left the uh, the house of his heavenly father, came to a foreign country, gave away all that he had, and returned through a cross to his father's home. All this he did, not as a rebellious son, but as the obedient son sent out to bring home all the lost children of God. That's what Jesus, God-man, did, all because of God's love for us. Only Jesus, see, is fully God and fully man. Second, Jesus was the only person ever to live that led a sinless life. 
Now, you understand, when, when Jesus came to earth, I mean, it was the sick and the disabled that they, they seemed to flock to him, right? He commended a, a groveling tax collector, the first person whom he revealed um, that he was uh, the Messiah openly was a Samaritan woman. <laughs> Remember her story? She's a woman who had a history of having five failed marriages and currently was living with another man who wasn't her husband. With his dying breath, Jesus pardoned a thief who had zero chance of any spiritual growth. The Gospels tell us over and over again, Jesus was a friend of sinners, yet Jesus himself was not a sinner. Jesus didn't gossip. He wasn't greedy. He didn't curse his neighbor and or cheat or take advantage of anyone. Following Satan's failed attempt to get him to sin, in Luke chapter 4, 13 says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan failed. To a Jewish crowd who was arguing with him, Jesus asked them, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? <laughs> Nobody could. In his second letter to the church of Corinth, Paul, writing about Christ's death on the cross, says, God made him who had, what, no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And again, the writer of Hebrews, arguing for the greatness of Jesus, states, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was what? Without sin. Only Jesus led a sinless life. I mean, you look around. Everyone you see in this world has sinned. Only Jesus led a sinless life. Therefore, only Jesus can take away your sin. Only Jesus can take your sin and could nail it to the cross. Only Jesus has dealt with what truly separates us from God. Jesus, the only sinless one, has provided everything you and I need for our salvation. Where sin brings bondage, Jesus' sacrifice purchases our redemption. Where sin brings alienation, Jesus' sacrifice reconciles us to God. Where sin brings wrath, Jesus' sacrifice propitiates God's anger. Where sin leads to death, Jesus' sacrifice raises us to eternal life. Where sin brings condemnation, Jesus' sacrifice justifies us before a righteous judge. Only Jesus is God-man. Only Jesus never sinned. Third, only Jesus conquered death. Listen, if you were Hindu at death, your hope would be that you might return a different existence to pursue your next stage in this ongoing, right, cycle of life. If you were a Buddhist, your assumption would be that at death, you would just be kind of absorbed into the formless beyond. <laughs> if you're a secularist, 
with no real conviction of a God, you would have no real hope beyond this life because for you, this life is all that there is. But see, as a believer in Jesus Christ, as Lord alone, you and I, we have a better answer. There's hope beyond death. There's the resurrection. Resurrection is more than just a pie in the sky wish or dream. No, it's a, a proven fact that Jesus rose from the grave, right? I mean, we read about it in historical records. In fact, when I think about it, it's quite remarkable. The same people who watched Jesus die weeks later left their occupations. Do you realize that? sold their possessions, devoted the rest of their lives to one simple message, and that as Jesus died on the cross, he was buried in a tomb, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. Then they even saw him, and they talked with him, and, and they touched him, and they ate meals with him. Listen to in fact what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, Paul, Paul here is essentially saying, hey, listen, listen, if you don't believe me, if you don't buy this stuff that Jesus has conquered death, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, then you can go talk to those people who, who have seen him, who have talked to him after he was raised from the dead. You can go, go talk to them, ask them questions. Because Jesus conquered death. And that, friends, changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, it gives us hope. I mean, think about it. Can't you just picture the disciples and the 500 who saw Jesus alive after they had seen him nailed to that cross? Can't you see them just lying awake in their beds thinking to themselves, oh, wait a second, whoa, oh, wait a second. Listen, if Jesus was raised from the dead, Hey, hey, wait a second. Maybe then even he can raise me from the dead. And maybe he could raise mom and dad from the dead. Maybe he could raise my brother from the dead. Maybe he could raise my baby from the dead. Listen, if, if Jesus conquered death, maybe he could conquer death for all of us. And you know what? <laughs> if they were thinking that way, they were right. Only Jesus conquered death. Only Jesus is God-man. Only Jesus never sinned. Only Jesus conquered dead, uh, death. And fourth, only through Jesus are we forgiven. Do you remember the story in the Gospel of, of Mark where Jesus heals a, a paralytic? Um, some friends had opened a hole in the roof above them, above Jesus, and then they lowered their paralytic friend right down in, in front of Jesus. And scripture says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. 
Do you remember the response of those religious leaders? I mean, those Jewish theologians, you know, that were there watching all this take place. You remember what they said? They said, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? (laughs) Well, their theology was right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And exactly, that was the point. Jesus, because he is God, can forgive us our sins. The writer of Hebrews, comparing Jesus to the high priest, says this, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, and he's talking about Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. See, Jesus came in flesh to forgive us. My forgiveness (laughs) does not depend upon uh, how good I am or on my holiness. It depends on what Christ did for me once and for all on the cross. The same is true for you, for everyone. Jesus is both the one who offers the sacrifice and is the sacrifice. He's both the priest and the lamb. (laughs) So here's my question. Who are you trusting to deal with your sin? Is it yourself? Your own self-constructed religion? Or is it the one and only perfect high priest? Let me give you one final only Jesus statement. Only Jesus is Lord. Only Jesus is Lord. See, after the resurrection, you got to understand, Jesus' followers began talking about him in a very particular way, very specific way. They didn't simply address him as, as Jesus. No, they called him Lord Jesus. You say, well, Sutton, why, why is that significant? Well, because it's more than just a, a term of respect. See, unlike their Roman neighbors um, who were polytheistic, the Israelites worship what? One true God, right? Yahweh. And in the Greek uh, Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word used to translate the name for Yahweh was the word kairos, which means Lord. And because they reserved all their worship for just one true God, Yahweh, it meant there could only be one person who could be called Lord. Only Yahweh could be called Lord. There could be only one Kairos, who was the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, the king of kings. This past week, as I was sitting in my office, I kept looking out the, the window. You know, kids weren't in school this week in, in Minneapolis with the strike going on, the teacher strike. Um, and so I would watch a group of them across the parking lot uh, of our, our church, across here by the garage. There's a big mound of snow, okay? Big mound of snow. Um, and um, they would be playing on that. And I realized very quickly they were playing what? King of the Mountain. Remember that game? King of the Mountain. And one kid would get up on top of that mound of snow and 
raise his arms, I'm the champion, I'm the king, and the other kids would attack from all sides and finally push that one king off, and, and the next kid would stand up there and he would be, be king. There could only be one king at a time, right, on top of the mountain. The same is true for Kairos. There's only one Lord, Yahweh. When Jesus walked out of the grave, his followers started calling him Kairos, Lord. As Stephen is being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, There is one God, the Father, from whom all whom are all things and for whom we exist, and what? One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. See, Jesus is the one true God. He is Lord. He is Kairos. And listen, when these early Christians called him Lord, it wasn't that they were just making a doctrinal statement. It was a statement about how they were going to live their lives. They weren't just calling him God. No, they were giving him authority over their lives because they knew him, knew that only Jesus has the power to heal nations. They, they knew that only Jesus has the power to restore marriages. They knew that only Jesus has the power to free us from addiction. Only Jesus has the power to renew us, our Renew us from our brokenness. Only Jesus can be trusted as Lord, Kairos of our lives. We all look to something or, or someone as Lord, don't we? Someone or something as Kairos. I mean, we trust our lives, our worth, our significance, our success in the hands of something or someone. We all serve something as Lord. I got to admit, sometimes, you know, just like we all do, I, I struggle to trust Jesus with what matters to me the most. Sure, I can come on Sunday mornings and I can worship him and I can do a bunch of church activities, but do I give him full control of my relationships? Do I give him full control of, you know, my dreams, my work aspirations? Do I give him full control of my financial life? Is he the only Lord of my life? <laughs> See, only Jesus can be Lord, Kairos of your life. Only he can restore you and lead you to where you want to go. Only Jesus can be trusted as Lord. Let me return to the story about the blind men and the elephant for a moment. At first, that story, it, it kind of, ah, oh, man, it feels like it makes sense, right? But you think about it a little bit, there's, there's two major problems with that analogy. First, the whole story is told from the vantage point of someone who clearly knows that the elephant is an elephant. For the story to make its point, the narrator has to uh, have clear and accurate knowledge of the elephant. <laughs> the second flaw with this story, though, I think is even more serious the story, in fact, as you think about it, is a perfectly good description of the human inability to know God by our own devices. But see, the story never um, considers this paradigm-shifting question. What if the elephant could talk? 
What if the elephant could tell the, the blind men, hey, that sharp spear thing, no, that, that, that's just one of my tusks. Hey, that snake thing you, you think is a snake, no, that, that's just really my trunk. You, no, you think that's a tree, no, that's just one of my legs. What if the elephant could say that to the blind men? I mean, if the elephant were able to say this, would the blind men be considered humble for ignoring his word? See, the truth is that Jesus Christ came as the word of God. God has chosen to speak to us, to reveal himself to us through Jesus so that we don't have to act like blind men. Jesus is not just your way to God. No, he is God who has come to to find you. He has come to find you today no matter what you bring to this place, no matter what's going on in your life. And Jesus will find you, find you even in those dark and messy places like doubt and depression. He'll find you in places filled with sin and shame. Jesus is the one God who says, I love you. I want to be with you so much that I'd rather die than lose you. That's why Jesus came. (laughs) That's why he took the cross on his back. That's why he, he walked up that hill called Calvary and gave his life for you. See, he is the king of the mountain. <laughs> he alone is king of kings and lord of lords. What I want to do is uh, this morning is something a little bit different. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up here. Before I close, I'm going to invite you to uh, look at those only Jesus statements in your outline. And I'd like you just to take a little bit of time and just circle that which is most meaningful to you. Which of those only Jesus statements is most significant and makes him truly king of the mountain in your life? Take a moment, do that, and I'll pray. Father God, we want to respond to what you have been speaking to us this morning. Your spirit moves in each of our lives, each of our hearts. God, we thank you for the truth that you are Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord alone. Kairos, king of the mountain. God, might we continue to hold on to that truth? Might we know how to answer those who question us, who Ask us how we can know that Jesus is the only way. God, might you continue to be the one we worship, the one we follow, the one we are obedient to, 
We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you give us and offer us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things. Amen.